Well, it is a good evening to you and how you be. William Haynes here. You are there at 7.02 on this Monday night. 1-0 on a victory Monday. Alongside our co-host Jackson Bigich to my left, our two esteemed panelists to my right, and producer Jack Oliaro peeking in from behind the glass. We're live from the WVFS studio in Tallahassee, Florida on 89.7 FM and wvfs.fsu.edu the voice of Florida State. The show is always available as a podcast the next day if you miss us live. And finally, you can call the show at 850-644-1837 or tweet us at V89Sports. Jackson Bakich, our co-host today, great to have you in. Great to be talking on a victory Monday. How are you? You know, I'm doing splendid. And if I was doing any better... I think I would be deceased, like no longer living. I would be dead, just, you know, to keep it short. But, you know, I'm, I'm doing solid. It's a Victory Monday. Uh, you know, let's give it a round of applause, guys. This yeah, is Victory Monday in Tallahassee for the first time ever for a season opener. Uh, a lot of good vibes in TLH this weekend. Absolutely. First time since 2016, as we'll talk about the Knolls were victorious in their season opener. And yes, it's against Duquesne. Yes, they're an FCS team. Yes, they have the creative player on the sideline. But uh, you can never take a 47-7 to victory for granted in, in this day and age with Florida State football. And, and I think we said this last year, the old adage of, you know, you lose big, then you lose small, then you win little, then you win big. Well, this is a big win in Week 0 uh, for their first game of the season next we have max rundy first time in a, in a few weeks we've gotten the pleasure of of talking with you big baseball guy but i know uh, you love the football too and uh this is certainly a great week to talk about some football so max great to have you in yep great to be back absolutely enjoyed my weekend here up here in uh, tallahassee fun time at the game wish it didn't rain so much but excited to be back and talking football for the first time in quite a while Absolutely, yeah. It's It's been a while that we said last week, you know, we've been waiting all summer talking about practices and depth charts and this and that, but now we have some real pigskin played on a gridiron and a final score that, that means something, and, and that's certainly what we're thrilled about. And rounding out the panel today, making her V89 Sports debut, we have Alex Rivero. Uh, she's done some, some work with Seminole Productions on ACC Network, amongst other things, but Alex, great to have you in. How are you? I am great. Thank you so much. Um, it was a great weekend for Florida State football, but am I surprised? No, I was not expecting anything less from our boys. And I just want this to continue. I don't want them to get comfortable. I just want them to keep going, keep pushing. That's what that's what Mike Norvell was saying in his postgame availability. I think the players were echoing the same sentiment that, yes, they did their due diligence to, to make sure they were where they needed to be for Duquesne. But as you saw, especially on the offensive side of the ball, they didn't give too much away. Really, everything is, is invested for uh, next, or I guess now this Sunday night in New Orleans against the LSU Tigers, and we'll talk about that. Uh, a little uh, further on. Speaking of that, it looks like we're going to have uh, Peter uh, Routerkus of the LSU student paper, the the Reveille, uh, and he'll join us at about 7:20. I'm hoping so. He'll he'll be calling in to talk about that game and and his LSU Tigers uh, throughout this offseason. First year coach and Brian Kelly, second time in a row. Florida State will take him on. So lots to dig in uh, to on there. And also producer Jack Oliaro, he'll have seminal segment at around 7:30, updating us on FSU soccer 
and volleyball. And then in the second half of the show, we'll have some college football, uh, some NFL news as well. There's the Jimmy Garoppolo. Um, you know, whatever was going to happen with him finally came down. So we'll have that to talk about at the very end. But looking at FSU's 47-7 to win over the Duquesne Dukes on Saturday, it's clear a new day has arrived in Tallahassee. They won their first season opener since 2016, played in their first Week 0 game since 2002. Uh, they have their most experienced quarterback since E.J. Manuel about a decade ago, if you can believe that, and even have a new man in the broadcast booth for the first time since 1979. So, Jackson, we'll start with you. Your takeaways from the game, what you thought. Um, I, I think the, the general consensus is this was the expectation. You don't get brownie points for, for beating a team like this by 40 points, but it still looks good when you're able to do it in the fashion that they did. Well, first off, you mentioned uh, the new play-by-play. So, you know, Mr. Mr. Jeff Colhane, that was a great, if you're listening, great uh, first touchdown call. And it was a, a little different iteration than, you know, Mr. Deckerhoff's touchdown FSU touchdown FSU but uh, from what I saw this weekend I saw a team that was that was hungry I saw a team that was ready to prove uh, the doubters wrong um, I saw a team that was looking to make do for last year um, against that Jacksonville State squad and I saw a team that uh, looks jailed offensively that that looks ready to to make the sacrifices in the trenches. Um, obviously, we saw three running backs rush for over 100 yards. Uh, so a good offensive output, first time that's ever happened in school history. So uh, it'll be an interesting game in New Orleans, that's for sure. Uh, since, since you mentioned it, you bounced off of what I was saying. We actually do have, I'll cue it up here, uh, Jeff Colhane, the, the new play-by-play voice of the Seminoles, his first touchdown call in the booth, and here it is. Right here for the Knowles. Looking at a first down, third and four from the five. Two receivers right, two tight ends to the left. Travis, zone read. He's going to run it himself. May throw it. Travis cuts it up. Travis dives. He's in there. Touchdown, FSU. Jordan Travis is in the building. That is uh, courtesy. Uh, Jeff Colhane put it on his Twitter and also courtesy of uh, Learfield and uh, Florida State football and, and all that. But it was uh, – <laughs> It's it's different, you know. The touchdown FSU. It's it's something new. We we interviewed him on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he said, you know, he had all these uh, calls queued up. I'm looking forward to see how he follows it up next week, because uh, depending on how that game goes, it could be a, a potential for a classic and and some big calls. I, I like that call. Yeah. I, I think you should stick with it. Yeah, absolutely. It was. Yeah, go ahead, Matt. I'll say this. I just finished interviewing him for the paper this past week, and the one thing he repeated a couple times was energy and passion. Very energetic and very passionate call right there. I would agree with that. It's uh, it's always good to, to get a new flavor. And as, as I said in my, my little spiel before, the first time since 1979, there's a new man with, with the headset on. So uh, many congratulations to, to Mr. Jeff Colhane for uh, for that. But, but getting back into the game uh, on the offensive side of the ball, Florida State, they scored on eight of their ten possessions over the course of the game. They scored on their first six possessions. By that point, they had a 33 to nothing lead after the first drive of the second half, and they didn't have to get too crazy with it. Simple running concepts, a lot of inside zone stuff, um, some tunnel screens, short passing here and there. Uh, I thought Duquesne's defense out of the gate, I think they probably made a mistake of, of playing back. They had their corners 12 yards off the ball. They didn't really have the, the box stacked to start the game, which, I mean, what what else would they were they expecting against an FSU team that under Coach Norvell, all, all they've done is run, run, run. But eventually the defense for Duquesne did come up. They started stacking the box, started bringing the, the defensive backs up, took a safety off the field, and I think put a linebacker on. 
and uh, Florida State was able to torch them. Johnny Wilson with a 51-yard catch that set up a score. He left the game, I think, with an ankle, but they said that he he wanted to go back in the game. They held him out because they knew it wasn't super consequential. So I think Johnny Wilson, uh, a fall camp darling, is, is going to be okay. 51-yard catch for him uh, early in the first half. And then Kentron Portier with a 48-yard catch on a, on a similar reception. So I think this is something we talked about in the offseason, guys, uh, for this offense. Um, Jordan Travis in year three, yes, the offensive line is better, but I think the system is still going to be in large part. you got to run to set up the pass. I'll say this. This offensive line, as we talked about a couple weeks back, you and I, it'll make or break this FSU offense. It really, in my opinion, comes down to that. And I understand Duquesne has something around 3,000 or so students total, let alone on their football team. Uh, It was very encouraging to see the way they – made those gaps, made those holes very easy for those three backs on Saturday, and it was promising. What wasn't as promising was the backup quarterback, (laughs) and I'm still a little shaky on the receivers. You saw someone, Kentron Portier, come out of really nowhere and have himself a great game. Whether or not he can sustain that over the season is a real question mark and a real worry. You think it's a worry? I think so. I think the big thing we saw a lot in the latter half of the season with FSU's offense was just getting open, especially with the limited time you have with this offensive line. It could excel. It really could. I could be wrong. But it wasn't like we had that spectacular bomb of a throw. There was no, like, wide open, just out random. And it's worrisome. I know it's maybe not Jordan Travis's forte, maybe not what – Norvell was working towards on Saturday, but I would have loved to see one or two of them. Yeah, I think against LSU on Sunday, you're going to see a much different game, and I don't. We'll get into that a little bit later, but they're they're going to have a stout defensive line. They're going to. It's not going to be as easy to rush on them, and then when you're in that situation, when you have to pass, maybe on third and long situations, as you mentioned, Max, that's a a situation where they're going to struggle. Um, as far as the receivers go, some some interesting faces. Like, I mean, Kentron Portier being the leading receiver in that game is not something that I would have uh, expected. He's one of those guys. That, I think they have three or four that are over 6'3 or 6'4, so he's one of their, their monsters that can go up and get the ball. Johnny Wilson had that one catch for 51. But outside, you know, a couple screens to Pittman. Deuce Span got a little bit involved. No catches by any tight ends. Cameron McDonald had not practiced really much in camp at all, and uh, I don't even know that he had any targets. And uh, Coach Norvell, I think, today was talking about they're going to open up the tight end rotation a little more. Uh, that is certainly a drawback that maybe you could take from the game. But that was the tight end group we knew about um, in the offseason was, was going to be um, a little bit of an issue. Max brought up the interception by Tate Rodemaker in the second half when they went to the second string. Uh, was not a great look for him. I think it was on fourth down and just kind of a, a throw over the middle where he had been sitting in the pocket too long and uh, you know the play had already developed. Uh, I don't think it, nothing has changed as far as the depth chart is concerned. I think they're still waiting on A.J. Duffy. There's no reason to, to rush him. Um, if you get into some crazy doomsday scenario where you don't have Travis, I, they may reevaluate it, but I wouldn't get too antsy about uh, the, the, whoever's playing second or third string quarterback. 
Um, and then one of the last notes I have, and then we, I can kind of throw it to some of you guys on what you have to say, but Jerrion Jones, the cornerback, transferred from Mississippi State a couple of years ago, was starting corner on Saturday, and he had a late hit out of bounds on Duquesne's first possession, and then he got beat a couple more times, and then he really didn't see the field after that over the course of the game, and not only that, but he has been demoted in the depth chart that was released today. Uh, Renardo Green has overtaken him uh, for one of the cornerback spots, so... Um, I don't think it's an overreaction to do that. I think Jerry and Jones might have already been a little bit on the hot seat and uh, not a great showing in the first game, and uh, Norvell is, is going to make a change. Yeah, and we've kind of seen Jerry and Jones over time uh, kind of be in that shaky position. You know, uh, I don't want to say Eli Apple, but, um, you know, he's in that spot where we're going to get, you know, they were going to give him the nod. Um, early on in the season because of because of his experience, uh, but I think it was pretty pretty apparent he's been on the short leash here for a while. Yeah, and they, they've got great depth at that position. Azaria Thomas and Sam McCall, both true freshmen. I think they're both going to get some time. Everyone got time on Saturday. I have a note here. Uh, 14 different offensive linemen appeared. Five of them played multiple positions. So, that, so everyone got in the game, and that was something that Coach talked about after the game, which was so important, not just that the starters played well, but you got some playing time um, in, in the latter port, parts um, of the game. Alex, what was, uh, what, what was your takeaways from, from Saturday's game? You know, I just wanted to go back on what you were saying, though, and, like, having those backup quarterbacks. I feel like in a game like this, like, something bad can happen, and you always got to prepare, and... What I saw from Tate Rotemaker, it just it didn't leave a good taste in my mouth. Like, I was very worried about that. Like, you're supposed to be this backup quarterback for this great Division One team, and you can't hold up like, in the game. You know what I mean? And, I mean, of course, we have A.J. Duffy. We have some of the walk-ons. Um, but, like, A.J. just came straight out of high school. I know he came from a powerhouse of a high school, IMG Academy. That's amazing. But he still hasn't played those or he hasn't had those experiences with this college football and I feel like that's what happens with a lot of these high school players once they transferred over to football to college football they kind of choke a little bit and I feel like I just want to see him kind of grow out of that and maybe have him play over Tate I don't know what you guys might might be your takeaway from that I mean once again of course I think Travis did a great job starting us out but you always need those backup plans just in case that something does happen especially now since we're going to LSU that is more of an aggressive team than what we saw with Duquesne and you just need those backups like I feel like you always need to have a backup just in case it seems as though the Renardo Green, Jerry Jones situation is kind of similar to maybe with the Tate Rodemaker situation where, you know, Rodemaker's kind of on a short leash. I know he's uh, still second in the depth chart. Um, you know, going against LSU, you probably still want that experience. Um, and for whatever reason, Jordan Travis goes down for a player or two. But what we do know is that Mike Norvell is not afraid to play younger players. We saw it in his first year in 2020. We saw it last year as well. He's not afraid to get his guys, his young guys, in the spotlight, under the lights. And, yeah, go ahead, Max. On that, Jackson, now, in a, in a morbid example or morbid uh, hypothetical for you, Travis, this is, this is a bad, bad vibes type yeah. of thing to bring up, but <laughs> snap, knee gone. Oh, my God. You just commit to the rookie. That's, that's what I would do. Season's over. This is one of those examples where no. the 
season's FSU, not FSU over. relies a lot on with, Jordan Travis. With the improvements of the offensive line, the season's not over yet. you got to run. I kind of agree with you, Max. We use him like a crutch. Like a crutch. Florida State football uses Jordan Travis as a crutch. No, I, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. But to say all hope is lost, all hope is gone after Jordan Travis, you know, hypothetically Maybe. goes down, we haven't seen how A.J. Duffy can do yet. Okay, that, that is fair. True. I think the fair point is Rotomaker's, like, ridden his time. His time here is not done, but I don't think he's just going to pop off in a scenario where he gets the rest of the season to start. Yeah, no. I think you have to play the younger one. I don't necessarily disagree with that. I, I I can definitely see Coach Norvell going to Duffy. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it depends on how he's doing in practice. It depends on, you know, if he's making smart decisions, if he's making the right reads, if he's not looking down safeties uh, and looking, excuse me, he's not looking down uh, his first target. It reminds me of for my freshman year when they would bring in Alex Hornibrook instead of, mm-hmm. who even was it back then? James Blackman. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it was after Blackman. Travis was there at that time, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, was I think I think they would play Hornibrook over Travis because Blackman was a no go. <laughs> yeah, because the thing is, I feel I agree with what you're saying, but at the end of the day, you can be this perfect practice player, and I do think Rodemaker is this perfect practice player. Also, no insult to any of the players; I think they're amazing. <laughs> I can't do any of that, but um, you could be a perfect practice player, but then once you're under the lights and you have these um, opposing team like, people like these players that are 300 pounds coming hurtling at you, you choke. And I feel like that's what happens a lot of the time. So, yeah, you could be a perfect practice player at the practice fields doing an amazing job, but then it all comes down to those away games, those home games when you're under the lights with the tens of thousands of people in the stadium. And I feel like that's when you it comes down to who's the actual better second backup quarterback. And when that's, when that's the conversation that you're having about your two and three quarterbacks where – it doesn't – I mean, the coaches could feel different, but I think the fans, the analysts, whoever, no one is really confident in who you have at number two. But the number three guy is a true freshman right out of high school in camp, um, had, had had his ups and downs, coaches saying he's still having a lot of growing pains, which is to be expected for a kid that I think is only 19 years old. Yeah. But And when you have that situation between your two and your three, I'm somewhat surprised at how aggressive they are with their number one quarterback and Jordan Travis, all the zone read stuff that they do that, um, I mean, getting, you know, taking hits between the tackles, all of it, it to me is a little surprising, but that's Jordan Travis's game. I think they know that's how they have to win with him. I'm hoping the passing is going to be better um, against LSU. Brian Kelly was saying that they are committed to making him throw from the pocket. So everything we've heard over the last six months or so, the spring into fall about Jordan Travis progressing as a passer. Um, we are uh, going to see about that. And we do have uh, the phones ringing off the hook right now. Jackson, let's go ahead and pick that up. I think we have our guest on the line. And uh, can you hear us? Peter Roderkus of, of the uh, of the LSU student paper. Yes, yes, I can hear you. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you in. How do you pronounce the, the name of the paper? Is it Reveille? Reveille, yep. Ellis, yep. yeah, the, you, you, you got it right first time. That's impressive. That's impressive. Most people don't. I had to look it up. I, I found a couple different pronunciations, and, of course, it has the, the French background coming from uh, th- that part of Louisiana. But, Peter, thank you so much for, for joining us. It's great to have you on to, to look at um, the LSU side of things. The, the first question I'll ask you is this. Head coach Brian Kelly spoke to the media today about this game on Sunday. Out of every, all, all of his quotes, what stood out to you? 
I mean, I guess, you know, where everything kind of started, the biggest question people were looking to have answered, you know, is what didn't get answered, and is that that's the quarterback situation. Um, Brian Kelly was very direct in saying that they have decided who the quarterback is going to be, but they will not announce it. You know, we will not find out until Sunday who, who that guy is going to be. So that was kind of the biggest thing that we were looking for going into it, and that's kind of the biggest thing that we got out of it is that we will, you know, be finding out along with everybody else, you know, and the rest of the world when, um, you know, we get kicked off on Sunday. Absolutely. Peter, this is Jackson Baker, co-host of Tomahawk Talk. How you doing? Doing well. How are Good. you? So I'm doing wonderful. So uh, two questions for you. Really, um, who do you think it's going to be? Who's your hunch? Yeah, so it's one of those things that's, um, it's, it seemed pretty neck and neck throughout the way. Um, obviously, you've got Jaden Daniels and Garrett Nussmeyer. It's a three-man race coming in, but just a couple weeks to go. You know, Miles Brennan decided to step away from football. And, you know, throughout, throughout camp, they both looked good. Um, you know, obviously, looking at what Brian Kelly's done in the past and what offensive coordinator um, Mike Denbrock's done in the past, even last year, they like to have a mobile quarterback, and that kind of points to why you know they might have brought Jake Daniels from Arizona State, a guy who's experienced as well and you know can run the kind of offense they like to run and is very mobile. But at the same time, and they've said it too, I mean, Garrett Nussmeyer has been very impressive. So I personally think we'll see both of them play. But, um, you know, with the experience advantage, I also wouldn't be surprised if it were Jaden to at least take – the first snaps on Sunday, but both of them have looked good, and I think both of them will play, at least for week one. Okay, yeah, I I, I think the, the the general perception around this game is, of course, it would be Jaden Daniels. He's played all these years at Arizona State versus a, a redshirt freshman, um, and, and you're right about the, the running aspect that Daniels has had um, as a Sun Devil. Sticking on the offensive side of the ball, the running back, John Emery, he's been suspended for the first couple games, and, and he won't play on Sunday. Um, what can you say about the effect that has on the on the game, on the offense? Are they confident in, in who's behind him and, and what's going on with that situation? Yeah, so the running back room is an interesting one because before the Emory situation really came to be, you had Trey Bradford, who was a guy who people had you know kind of high hopes on going into fall camp after having a good spring, but then it was announced on the first day of camp that he was no longer with the program. And now with Emory gone, you know, you had a running back, you had a really solid group with four guys, now that's down to two in transfer Noah Kane from Penn State and then sophomore Armani Goodwin, who looked good at times last year but didn't play very much due to injuries. So you've got Kane and Goodwin, you know, for week one. And both of them have looked have looked solid. Both of them have looked good during camp. And Noah Kane's a guy who's proven it at Penn State. He's done well. But, you know, since getting injured in 2020, it's still kind of yet to return to that form. So, you know, with Emory out, obviously – you know, you're losing a big piece of that backfield. So it's going to be interesting to see how they fare. They're going to need some, some production from, you know, some guys that haven't, haven't proved it as much, at least as of recent. This is the first time since the year 2000 where LSU was not ranked in the preseason poll. And they've got a shiny new coach in Brian Kelly. They're putting the, the Ed Orgeron era behind them. Um, what, are, what are your expectations for year one, and, and what kind of team are you expecting to see on Sunday? Yeah, so it's um it's it's a true transition year, um, you know, kind of similar to 2000. You know, when it was when it was Nick Saban's first year in Baton Rouge. You, it's a whole, you know, when Les Miles left and Ed Orgeron came in, you had a coaching change, but it wasn't this kind of fundamental shift that you have now. Now with Brian Kelly here, everything 
everything feels different. Every the way they do things around the program, it's all completely different. It's a completely different personality. You've got all these new players, new coaching staff. So just with you know, obviously, you know, in the SEC you've got Alabama. And Alabama's got what looks to be a really dominant team this year. And I, so I don't expect LSU to be a team that necessarily competes for the SEC or for a championship this year. But this is a team that has talent. You know, you've still got a lot of talented guys, especially on the defensive line and the wide receiver group. And this is a team that could surprise people, I think. But if you had to ask me for a prediction, I would say around 8-4, and 9-3 and three is about how I see them. And I think that would be a good year for year one under Brian Kelly. Hi, Peter. How are you? It's Alex Rivero. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for asking. Um, so I just want to get kind of pick your brain a little bit and ask you, how do you feel about LSU's program, I guess, all around it not being unranked? It's being unranked for the first time since 2000. Like, how do you think that's affecting the team, affecting the coach, and, like, how, like what's, their, what's their mindset going to be going into this game on Sunday? You know, it's almost like it, it kind of feels like a fresh start in a sense. You know, you've got a whole new coaching staff, a whole new group of players, and you know, now you don't have that expectation that maybe you've had in your past. So in a sense, it kind of gives them a fresh start. And, you know, the feeling that I've gotten just being around the program and seeing their response to it, it doesn't seem to be something that they've really talked about much or something that they've really mentioned in the way they're preparing for the season. I think, you know, year one under any new coaching staff, and especially in this case, is kind of about setting the foundation. I think that's what we're going to try to do this year. Um mm-hmm. So in terms of coming into the year unranked, I think, if anything, that takes just a little bit of pressure off, you know, doing that in year one. Also, now that I have you, I have one more question, if that's all right. Um, So I noticed you guys had a four-star recruit, a linebacker, Anton Sampa. I know he really didn't play that much. He was redshirted his freshman year in 2020 and then – or like he didn't play that much, only about four games, and then he was injured last year in the 2021 season and he just announced that he was in the transfer portal. Do you think that's going to have a big effect on LSU's team, or do you think it wasn't like a big surprise that it was going to happen? Happening. Yeah. So it was. Um. That it was kind of an interesting story to see today. So Antoine Sample was a guy, four-star recruit coming out of high school, had some expectations, but was never, but never really able to get a lot of playing time. You know, dealt with injuries throughout his career, and um, that's kind of what spelled the end of his time at LSU. You know, kind of by this year, they had gotten some transfer portal guys. They'd gotten some new some um, new talented freshmen coming in the last couple of years to a point where, you know, he did just kind of get phased out over time. So um, it, it wasn't too big of a surprise um, to see that happen. Um, there just wasn't a whole lot of snaps for him left in this in this defense and in this linebacker group. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. Uh, from, a, from an FSU perspective, whenever they play an SEC team, obviously they play Florida every year and they occasionally will have other non-conference games. The narrative is always – um, the trenches, the offense and defensive line is going to be different than any other kind of opponent that Florida State faces. Um, what's your confidence in LSU's defensive front to stop FSU's run game? Because you know that's what they want to do. I know Brian Kelly also said he wants to keep Jordan Travis in the pocket. And uh, how did you feel about their ability to do that? Yeah, so I would say between the wide receivers and the defensive line, I mean, I would say the defensive line is the strongest group LSU has on this team. I mean, you've got four potential first-round draft picks. Um, two guys who could go first-round this year, um, you know, another two, or no, three who could go first-round this year, potentially, and another one who's projected as a first-rounder next year. So you've definitely got some, some guys on the, on the defensive front. 
An interesting thing about that, though, when you mentioned stopping the run, is that, you know, through camp, you know, just watching practice and from things that we've heard, is that this defensive line has been really good in pass rush, but and this could say more about the LSU offensive line as well. The LSU offensive line has been better at, you know, kind of moving and controlling this defensive line when it comes to the run than when it comes to the pass. And um, kind of that, that kind of speaks a little bit to the personnel LSU has. I mean, LSU has four great pass rushers on this defensive line that I think could cause havoc, havoc to any offensive line. Um, how they stop the run, I think, is going to be something that's going to be interesting to watch this game. I think it's going to be a major key to, you know, the way this game goes on Sunday. Last question I got for you, Peter. What are you hearing, you know, boots on the ground about the uh, the LSU fans traveling to the Superdome? Will it be 80% purple and gold? What, what are you thinking? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, anytime LSU fans in the world, anytime there's a game in New Orleans, LSU fans are going to be there. I mean, it's funny enough, I was talking with people today. The um, last time LSU was there was the national championship game in 2019. And that was, I mean, just one of the craziest scenes that I've, you know, that I've seen. So, you know, LSU fans are always, always going to show out, especially when the game's in New Orleans, you know. So I believe there will be a lot of LSU fans percentage-wise. I mean, I've heard that, you know, Florida State fans have been, have, you know, been buying tickets and they're going to be there as well. But I, I certainly project, you know, whether in the stadium or around the city, it's, it's going to be a lot of purple and gold on Sunday. All right, fair enough. Peter uh, Rodericus, thank you so much, sports editor of the Reveille, and uh, thanks so much for coming on and giving us uh, some of your time tonight. Yep, thank you so much for having me. All right. There he goes. Great having Peter with us. Thanks again for, for him to uh, join the program. And uh, we're going to break for the half, and we have producer Jack Oliaro with Seminole Segment. Jack, take it away. Jack is back, and back is Seminole Segment, the segment relaying the latest and greatest in all of Florida State's athletics. We begin right here in Tallahassee, where the second-ranked Florida State Seminoles had their home opener in front of 1,000 in attendance against the 16th-ranked Auburn. The Knolls had just come off their opening week, where a tough draw at South Carolina was followed up with a 3-1 win over Georgia. Florida State once again put in a performance similar to that of such a South Carolina game where a strong defense was evident, but an attack was lacking the killer instinct. They began with a penalty conversion by Heather Payne to put the Knolls up 1-0, but at the half, the Tigers answered back with a free kick outside the box that was perfectly delivered to Sidney Thibodeau for the equalizer. Despite 66% of possession and 17 shots, the lone seminal goal was a penalty, and if you take the Georgia game out, they haven't scored in, in, they haven't scored in play. They have had chances, 35 shots, but no goals. They'll look to quickly turn around with a trip to Gainesville against a struggling Florida side. That game will be on at 5 p.m. on SEC Network Plus, the appetizer before FSU and LSU kickoff in New Orleans. Meanwhile, in Cincinnati, uh, the Florida State bas- uh, excuse me, volleyball team began their season at the Fifth Third Bank Arena for the tribute to number 10 tournament. Their slate included the Illinois State Redbirds, the Dayton Flyers, and the Cincinnati Bearcats. They began on Friday with a four-set win over the Redbirds. Uh, the two Audreys leading the way with Audrey Cohen and Audrey Rothman combining for 23 kills and 27.5 points. Uh, the unranked but receiving votes Dayton Flyers were also dealt a 3-1 defeat as the teams were tied one set apiece before FSU took the third set by 10 points, then finishing the job with a tight uh, fourth set. The final match against Cincinnati was the Knolls' uh, first loss in the season as FSU lost the first two sets by two points, crushed the Bearcats 25-9 in the third set before conceding another two-point loss. Uh, two wins and a loss to start the season, uh, but they'll get to stay at home this week with four home games starting with Florida A&M on Wednesday, James Madison on Thursday, and a doubleheader of Yale and Austin Pay 
on Saturday. But that's going to do it for me this in this week's edition of Sentinel Segment. William and Jackson, beat it. And we're back on Tomahawk Talk, 733 WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State, William, Jackson, Alex, and Max. We just had uh, Peter Roderkus of the Reveille, which is the LSU student paper, and that was great having him on, getting some insight about LSU heading into uh, Sunday's game, and that'll that'll serve as our preview, uh, but we'll give score predictions now as well. So 7.30 on ABC inside the Superdome. It's a shame they're not playing those games on campus. The game between the two teams will be in Orlando next year. I'll start off with my prediction. I have 24-20 LSU. I think the front seven is going to be able to beat the Knolls up front, and I think if you can't have those 8-9, 10-yard easy runs that they had against Duquesne, and Brian Kelly said he wants Jordan Travis to throw from the pocket. Um, there's going to be some bumps, and um, they're, they're, this team is going to face some legit adversity. It reminds me of when we played UF to finish last year, and I said it on the call with, with Peter. The, these LSU fronts, or sorry, these SEC fronts are completely different than anything you play. So I'll give LSU the advantage, and uh, given the, the Knowles their first loss of the year. Jackson, what do you got? You know, I see Brian Kelly uh, in his first year. I see Mike Norvell in his third Um I see a little bit more consistency. I think Coach Norvell is a great manager. Um, not necessarily you know, a game manager. We've seen uh, some decisions that have been questionable in the past, but I think he is a good culture manager. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, I have Florida State winning 27-23 in Baton Rouge. No, excuse me. New Orleans. New Orleans. The Big Easy. Call, I was about to make a Garth Brooks call in Baton Rouge joke, but you know, doesn't, doesn't work all that well. When it's in New Orleans. All right, Max. I'm gonna go a bit high, more high scoring. I think FSU's offense pops off for a good like 23, but gives up a good 40. We'll say. And hey. Alex, we'll finish with you. I don't know, guys. I think this might be a close one. Going off what you said, Jackson. This is Norvell's third year. He already has a couple years under his belt. This is Brian Kelly's first year. He's a little bit not. I wouldn't say new to it, but he's new at LSU. And I guess that does play a big difference when it comes to the whole team dynamic and how you would run a team and how you're the, fam- the familiarity with the teams. Um, but I'm going to have to give it also to the Tigers. I'm going to have around the same numbers, 27 t- to 23, I think, is what I had. I don't know. Uh, Producer Jack had FSU 34, LSU 20. So he's got a couple of touchdown <laughs> win over LSU. So uh, getting the people pumped up with some Kool-Aid there. Jackson, you had something? Yeah, it's kind of interesting how – you know, people, I'm not saying you didn't, and I'm not saying, Max, you didn't either, but, you know, there's this idea that, you know, Lincoln Riley or, or Brian Kelly is going to make this a playoff team in their first year. It, building a culture takes time. And I'm not saying that Ed Orgeron necessarily had a bad culture at LSU, but a change of culture is a big deal. Um, I agree. It's going to take more than that fake Southern accent he's putting on. <laughs> you know, when he's, you know coming down to the south with his family, you know. But I will say, uh, working for the team my freshman year, uh, the thing that I learned um, 
definitely the most is, you know, you know, from the outside looking in, you know, growing up, watching college football, you just kind of assume that all of these these players just gel naturally. You assume that uh, team chemistry is not really a factor and it's just all talent uh, and it's all uh, skill, yeah. right? But when I was in there, I saw the culture that, that Coach Norvell was trying to change. Um, you know, I saw guys that should have been leaders that weren't leaders, and I saw how that affected the team. I really did, and it really, you know, when you look at uh, – it's a big common trope in basketball. You, you just throw a bunch of talent together and, you know, hope they figure it out. And, you know, other than maybe the heat in 2012, 2013, um, you know, that four-year run that they went on, four straight finals – um, you know, LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, they were already pretty good friends at that point. But my point is, is that just because you throw a bunch of talent on the wall and hope that it sticks, doesn't mean that it's going to stick. I think we're underestimating, though, based off of one, maybe one and a half bad years of LFCU football, that this is a really bad team. I mean, this team is still relatively fresh off of a national championship. I mean, I know they lost a lot of players that very next year. I think Ed Ergeron was a great coach, and I think Brian Kelly's an even better one. I think not even to downplay Mike Norvell or the Seminoles, I think this will be a good, high-scoring, classic college football game, and I think the slight home field advantage will play a rather noticeable dividend. And I said this in the spring when they announced Brian Kelly's hiring, um, and I'll say it again. Uh, it took some gall. For, for Brian Kelly to go to the SEC. I, I, that does not get talked about enough. Uh, he had never coached in the South before. He would never recruited really in the South. He's always kind of, you know, uh, stayed in that Midwest area and kind of recruited from up there. Uh, for him to say, you know what, I believe in myself. I believe in my coaching ability. Uh, I believe in my ability to lead a program, you know, uh, not to use a cliche, uh, example, but like, you know, like a Phoenix from the ashes to kind of rebuild extremely quickly. Uh, I, I think it, it, it took a lot to do that. And I, I have a lot of respect for Brian Kelly um, in that regard. You know, people talk about how he left Notre Dame. Um, you know, it's kind of weird. No one really talks about that anymore. They just all kind of went away. But uh, yeah, props to him for, I'm glad, for making that decision. I'm glad you're bringing this up because no one really talks about that. Like, the ways that different areas in the U.S. play, like football in the South is cutthroat. Like it is do or die down here. Like that is everyone's life for like the span of September to maybe around December is college. It is all all and only college football. But and you go to the Midwest, you go to the, the West Coast. It's just so different. And the way that you play, the way that you recruit, the quality of teams is so different and the way that they look. And I'm really glad you brought this up because – Notre Dame is kind of in the Midwest, kind of a little bit up north. Like, it's different from this deep south, strong, rooted football that, like, which is LSU. Like, LSU is just – when you think of college football, you think, like, Alabama, LSU. You think, like, these big powerhouse teams. I know the past couple of years LSU hasn't been, of course, it's best, like how you were saying, Max, but it's still something that you think of because of, like, the stereotype that is this south, this, this southern college football. And I do think it is very admirable – and I just want to see how, like, what he brings to the table, if maybe he brings up some of those, like, 
the the coaching styles that they do use in the Midwest. Maybe if he brings it down here, maybe that might change the game, might make it better, might make it worse. Who knows? I guess we're just really going to have to wait till Sunday to see. But I am excited to see this kind of like this mixture of like the different parts of the U.S. and like how they play college football being kind of, I guess, like brought together in a way. And I want to see like how he kind of not transforms LSU football because I know that's probably going to take a couple years, but I want to see what he brings to the table. We, we've all talked about the, the challenges that Brian Kelly is going to face in LSU, but I'll tell you my guess as to what he likes about LSU is gone are all the academic requirements that he has to go around at Notre Dame, Notre Dame like Stanford and, and those kind of schools um, where the players, you know, the, to enter them. There's no there's no special, you know, exemptions for players. They have to meet the same as all the other students. So you're working with a different talent pool. Now at LSU, he's in the south. Louisiana is, is one of the hottest states in high school football right now. And, you know, gone are the, as I said, the And one of the worst states for K-12 through education. So, I mean, that kind of fits What perfectly. a surprise how that works. Yeah, cor- yeah the correlation be- between there. I remember, uh, just a little side note, I remember back in the day when Florida State was playing Alabama, and uh, this one guy tweeted, he said, you know, I'm at the hotel the day before the game. Uh, I see an Alabama fan eating yogurt with a fork. At that oh. point, I thought we had won um, <laughs> and uh, didn't turn out that way. But I thought it was a funny tweet. I'll be in uh, in New Orleans. So I'll, I'll report on any kind of crazy stuff on Bourbon Street or whatever that uh, these LSU fans will be up to. We'll be on the air next Monday night on Labor Day to uh, break down all the action. Hopefully yeah, we're both going to that Florida game, State. and we're going to have to make that trek back, but it'll be worth it. We're, we're excited to, to bring you uh, the coverage next week on Tomahawk Talk. Absolutely, yeah, Dick. One of our probably biggest shows this semester, so yeah, make sure to... Uh, stay tuned for this. Uh, we've got a lot of other stuff, so I want to move on. The last note I'll say about this game is Jaden Daniels got a lot of pop at Arizona State. I think got a lot of attention when he transferred to LSU. Very surprising to me that he was not the runaway favorite in camp. It goes back to that old adage of if you have two quarterbacks, you really have none. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that he's been competing in camp with a redshirt freshman that I hadn't heard about until today looking it up. Just something to keep an eye on. Florida State has been able to dial up some blitzes and, and some pressure in big moments as, you know, as of last year. Um, so that's, that is one thing. If the game goes right in the Seminoles' favor, that might be uh, the reason why. But Florida State was not the only team uh, in college football that played this past weekend. Really the only other game worth noting, and we'll get into it here. In Dublin, Ireland, the Nebraska Cornhusters against... Uh, the Northwestern, whether the Wildcats. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jackson, we were talking about this, I think, with some friends earlier in the week. Nebraska was favored by 12, and that didn't really make any sense. I think the people were, t- we were all agreeing, like, Northwestern outright, and Northwestern, or, or rather, uh, Nebraska has, all, has had all these heartbreakers. They scored a touchdown on, t- on their first two drives, these really long drives. Casey Thompson, the transfer quarterback from Texas, looks awesome. They're down three at halftime, and then they score two touchdowns their first two drives out of the half. They're up 28-17. to 17. Scott Frost goes for the onside kick. They don't score again the rest of the game, and they lose 31-28 to 28 in their season opener. Wow. Uh, Scott Frost in Nebraska in his fifth year, 5-21 and 21 in one-score games, 15-30 and 30 overall. Uh, all the, the puns write themselves. Scott Frost is sitting on the hottest seat in America right now. <laughs> I just don't get it. I, I, it, it feels like um, like in Bull Durham. It's like his glove is cursed, and they need a chicken to, to, to break it. You know, I The rosary over the bat. It, yeah, exactly. I, I don't get it. I, 
I don't understand why this Nebraska team can't win games. And they're not going through that natural progression of lose small, win small, win big. It is just lose small, lose small, lose small, lose small. I just don't get it. And, you know, who knows? I mean, I I think Nebraska, they want to give him a shot so badly because he was, you know, such a great quarterback uh, back in the day for the Huskers. But at some point, the fantasy has to come to an end. I'm not saying it's going to happen soon, but uh, I think probably by week six, if they have a losing record, wouldn't be surprised if uh, Scott Frost has asked what the shape of Italy is. <laughs> they, they'll have to play Oklahoma in a few weeks, so that could be the breaking point game. Um, Scott Frost, I think, probably would have been fired in the offseason. They reached this kind of weird compromise instead where they restructure his contract. They cut his buyout in half. I think his, his salary for this year was cut a bunch. And all these stipulations, he's no longer calling plays. They got Mark Whipple uh, to be the offensive coordinator. He he ran that pit offense last year with Kenny Pickett and all those guys. So there's it's, it's a different show, um, but it's – you look at the the drive chart. They they scored the first two t- you know, drives out of halftime. Kick the onside kick. Don't get it. All their drives the rest of the game. Three and out. Three and out. Interception. Four and out. Three and out. Interception. I mean, you're playing a Northwestern team that had one of the worst offenses in college football last year, and those are the drives that you put up in the second half. I just kind of like what you said, Jackson, like there's nothing really left that we need to see. I think especially in Nebraska, people, they're tired of it. I don't, I don't really see where, where they go from there. Cause there's really and their, nothing. Their fan base deserves so much more. They have one of the greatest, the sellout uh, streak. That's right. And Alex, you had something to add? Uh, yeah, just, I just found it funny because I watched the game also and I thought there was a, a couple of bad calls, but I was looking at this ESPN interview that Frost had and he said that, he was taking full responsibility for the um, here. Where is it? The onside kick, and he said that that was the one call that he said he would have never done if he could make another call again. And I was like, I don't know, bud. We watched the whole game. Like there was a couple of calls that you couldn't have not made. Like just that one onside kick really wouldn't have made or break that type of loss because it was a completely avoidable loss. I think that there was just a couple of a couple of plays that could have been avoided, a couple of calls that could have been avoided. And kind of going off what you said, yes, sports are for the dreamers, but when you're dealing with this type of money with college football programs, you don't need a dreamer, you need an actual coach, and you need someone that's actually going to do the job. Yeah. I think the even more like befuddling part about Scott Frost is on a macro level, not just so much like this one individual game and all these individual super closely tied games he's recruiting really well and I mean we were just talking about the difference of recruiting from where he was down here in middle of the state Florida to up in middle of nowhere Nebraska to I mean 2019 he 19th was Nebraska's national ranking for recruits 2020 they were 20 2021 they were 25 and this year they're 32 their records within the Big Ten West not just the Big Ten the Big Ten West Oh, wow. 2019, fifth. 2020, fifth. 2021, sixth. They're already 0-1 this year. This is a Big Ten West that's not even good. I mean, like, I was born and raised a big Badgers fan, and the Big Ten West used to be a lot more scary than it is nowadays. Yeah. And it's anyone's for the taking year in and year out, and it's not going to be Nebraska's. I guess the next question is, what is he saying to these recruits that he's just getting all of them over there? Like, I want to know what his recruiting tactic is. Maybe – 
Maybe he can come and talk. Sure to as heck, not the parties up money, in the brass. Money, <laughs> money talks. The corn husks. But what I don't understand is he brought UCF to a national championship. You know, you know, a little you know, thirteen and zero, the asterisk championship. But uh, you know, he, he brought them to an undefeated season. They beat Auburn in the Peach Bowl. They had a cornerback balling with one hand. <laughs> I mean, how, why can't? He get it done in Nebraska. I just don't get it. It kind of reminds me of a Willie Taggart situation, someone that's a, you know, a seminal for life. Uh, there are reports that when USF, when Taggart was coaching there, would play against FSU, his family was so diehard that they were cheering against him because they were that big of FSU fans. So, uh, you know, with, with Frost, golly, I think everybody wants him to succeed so bad, too. That's the funny thing. Everybody wants him to succeed. I don't think there's anybody that's preying on Scott Frost's downfall. He won but a national championship as a player. Exactly right. It's a, it, it, it feels like this this fairy tale yeah. um, that everybody wants to come true. Um, but, but he's got to win games. It doesn't matter how close you lose them by if they're not wins. But I feel like it again trickles down to like the quality of football that's being played in the different areas of the states. Like Nebraska's like Kind of in the middle of nowhere. Like, it's a lot different than Florida football and, like, Southern football. So maybe he's just trying to use those Southern tactics over there, and it's just really not reading with these new players. So I don't know. I think I just go back to what I'm saying. College football isn't really for the dreamers. You just need someone that's going to go in there and do their job and actually get some wins because, um, like, a lot of these boosters, they just don't, don't want to spend their money to see teams losing. Like, they want to spend their money to get national champions or just at least a win on a, on a regular season game. I, I just, I don't know. I feel like it's just really not reading with the Nebraskan team. So I just feel like something needs to be done. We're not even to week one yet, and Nebraska is already, like, out of relevance for 2022. <laughs> I think that's 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 really disheartening. So fitting of where they're at. But If uh, it was a back-and-forth game, maybe this conversation's a little different. Maybe not. I don't think it would be. But still, the fact that they were up 28-17 to against Northwestern, a team in Chicago that still has – well, I mean, the Chicago Bears still have grass. But a team that still has grass – in Chicago, uh, it, it shows you it shows you how little they you know don't really care about football. I mean Pat uh, Pat Fitzgerald, their coach, has been there for like 17 years, and they've been a mediocre program um, for those 17 years. Uh, and he hasn't, you know, I don't. I'm mean, obviously I'm not completely up to date on Northwestern football. They were okay at one point. Yeah, I mean, they, I remember there was a, a year or two ago where yeah, they, they gave were, Ohio State a run for their money. within the Big yeah, Ten. Yeah, I mean, they were, you know, maybe nine or ten wins at the best. Yeah. But my point is, is that Northwestern's not a football school. No, it's North, not. Northwestern is not this this team that uh, you're expecting to come back from 28-17 to 17 against Nebraska, a team that had so much hype. Uh, not hype, I... I Optimism is a better word to use. Uh, 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 I, actually, maybe that's the name of the episode. I just don't get it. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I don't get it. And uh, well, we'll move on to some, some college football that is actually of some relevancy. The top 25 AP poll was released. Uh, some real week one games played this week. I'll just rattle off the top 10, and then we can get into it. Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia, Clemson, Notre Dame, Texas A&M, Utah, Michigan, Oklahoma, and Baylor round out the top 10. As far as the ACC goes, some competition. Clemson at number 4, NC State at number 13, Miami at 16, 
and Wake Forest at 22. So you've got plenty of teams in the ACC being represented here. Uh, I mentioned earlier LSU unranked for the first time since the year 2000. And can you guys believe this? This is the first time where both FSU and UF have been out of the top 25 in a preseason since 1974. I wonder if you add Mich- or excuse me, if you, I was thinking about Miami and I said Michigan. I wonder if you add my Miami to that list. I wonder how far ba- that list goes oh, back. Probably never happened. Yeah. Um, so just quickly, because I do want to get into some some week one games. Overrated, underrated. I'm shocked to see Utah seven. I know they beat Oregon twice last year. I think Miami is always overrated. But uh, what, what are we thinking? I'm on. Go ahead, Mike. Sorry. I'm all for the Utes. Yes. Go in Gainesville. This I almost, week. I basically joked my way into convincing my parents I would apply to Utah simply <laughs> because it was just a fun word to say. Oh no. Utah. But uh, I actually have heard a lot of promise about the Utes. I think they might come out of that. Pac-12, not that anyone really cares, but I mean, they might be pretty good and they might sneak their way into a top four in a year where off of surface level research, I don't think the college football system is going to be too deep this year. I think it's going to be Bama and Georgia and maybe someone else. I am not, you know, Tomahawk Talk does not promote sports gambling, nor does it give gambling advice. Pizza picks. (laughs) Pizza picks. Brett Rutherford, shout out. But if I was a gambling man, I am hammering the Utes this season. Uh, I have a lot of faith in them. I think they come out of the Pac-12, uh, maybe even grab a playoff spot. All right. Well, a couple of two really, really big games are being played on Saturday, so you'll have a chance, whether you're in New Orleans, Tallahassee, otherwise, to, to watch these games before because FSU is the lone game on Sunday. But on Saturday... It starts off with number 11, Oregon, versus number 3, Georgia. They play this one in the Mercedes-Benz Superdome in Atlanta. So, I mean, really kind of a a situation like New Orleans. It is a quasi-home game for Georgia. Georgia's favored by 17. So, I mean, that's a lopsided uh, spread to start off. Um, Do we think Oregon can put up a fight the first year without Mario Cristobal, new era? Absolutely. I'm a diehard Oregon fan. I know it's ironic to say the Knoll is a Ducks fan. Yeah, but don't say that around here too loud. I know, I know, I know. Um, but I'm really happy at Oregon's preseason ranking. Um, 11? 11, that's huge. Because half the time they're either like in the low, low teens, early 20s, or maybe not even on the list at all. And the fact that they're 11, almost in the top 10, is amazing. Do I think they're going to win Georgia? I mean, beat Georgia? I am not 100% sure. I'm obviously going to say yes, because again, I am a diehard Ducks fan. But... I just think comparing these two powerhouse teams, Georgia's always going to take the top. I think I think Oregon can keep this one closer than the 17-point spread would maybe you suggest. Think? I think Georgia, with maybe a little bit of a championship hangover, it's kind of surprising to me that they're number three, not number one. I know they had a bunch of players leave for the draft. but Yeah. I would say Georgia to win, but maybe Oregon to, to put up a little fight, keep that game interesting in the afternoon. Okay. And then in the evening, kind of the big one, Number five, Notre Dame traveling to Columbus to play number three, Ohio State. Ohio State as well, favored by 17.5. New era in South Bend, Brian Kelly gone. Um, Coach Freeman, uh, Marcus Freeman in, kind of the young defensive whiz. I think his team a little bit overrated at number five. Uh, and it, I would imagine I imagine they'll be outmatched, to say the least, against the Buckeyes. Ohio State by two Sunday. touchdowns. Five touchdowns. I would say probably <laughs> – like a 21 to 28 point win for Ohio State because I I mean people are talking national championship for Ohio State this year Ohio State at number two not number three I guess it depends where you look I believe it I think they'll I'll take I think they'll take the top this year I think interesting take yeah who who's covering the spread Ohio Ohio State State. 
I Hands seriously down. full-heartedly what, what is that. the spread? I didn't 17 hear this. And a half. Yeah, I, ooh. I think it might That's be a little a more. Line. It That's is a good, good line. line. 17, I could believe. Mm. That'll I'm, be close. I saw somewhere they were going to do it by 22. I think that's a little bit more of a realistic number. I would see that. You know, we yeah. didn't cover this weekend. Really? Yeah, FSU's cover was like 41 was and a half. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm not really that surprised. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's why they get paid to set those lines. Tate doesn't way. throw that pick, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, one interesting thing before the season starts, Florida's schedule, before they play Georgia on October 29th, they have a chance to be, I think they'll, they'll be three and four. Going into that Georgia game. Interesting. Look at this schedule. Great. Utah, then Kentucky. Those games are both at home. South Florida at home. Then you have to go to Tennessee. Then you play Eastern Washington at home. Oh. Missouri at home. And then LSU at home. A lot of home games early part of the season. But three and four, I think. If they are above 500 going into that, that Georgia game, I think that's a success for Billy Napier in his first year. Watch them steal this Utah game, and we all look so dumb. I don't see it. Oh, my God. I really hope not. I don't see it. And, and maybe the crowd really, you know, plays a huge factor in that game. You know, the Swamp, Ew. it is a good venue. I hope not. Got to give them um, credit there. The Swamp um, is pretty awesome. I mean, they, they don't get down like we get down, but uh, they, they know how to how to get a crowd loud. But I, three and four from Florida, I, I'm, I'm calling it. But you really think an unranked team is going to beat number seven, Utah? It's happened, you know. I mean, I it's know. Florida, like I said, they're going to have the crowd on their side. In the first game of the year, uh, you know, we talk about boxers in the first round feeling each other out, uh, and that's heightened even more in a first game and of a season. There's just such low expectations for the Gators this season. It's like this is something they would just mess so. around and do real quick. Maybe nationally there's low expectations, but Florida fans and Florida boosters are notorious for having extremely high expectations at all times. I, you know, say what you want about Florida State fans. Florida State fans are at least more realistic. Realistic. Yeah. I mean, we bought into being a basketball school. I mean, we are. <laughs> we did great. I mean, not last season, but the year before last season. Exactly. Amazing. We got to wrap it up because we got about less than a minute, so we can't dive oh. too deep into this. But an NFL story I wanted to hit. I've been saying NFL. Jimmy Garoppolo, backup quarterback now of the 49ers. Uh, it was looking like he was going to get traded. Now he is going to stay. Just announced a couple hours before we went live. Restructured deal for 2022, and then he'll be an uh, unrestricted free agent after that. No trade clause, no tag clause. He'll get paid $6.5 million to be Trey Lance's backup this year, plus another $9 million and possible incentives. That's maybe if uh, if uh, Lance doesn't play or, or whatever. But uh, we finally got some resolution to that story. I, I was thinking he was going to get traded. He wasn't even really practicing with the team, but he's going to stay in San Francisco for at least one more year. But this has been Tomahawk Talk for myself, William Haynes, co-host Jackson Bakich, Alex Rivero, Max Rundy, producer Jack Oliaro. We will catch you next week to hopefully talk about a seminal win. Louis is next with new release. You're listening to WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State.